<laughs> this is about the fifth time I've tried to record an intro for this episode, and I keep making uh, double entendres and, uh, <laughs> and malaprops, uh, which is easy to do when your subject is porn in the military, which ours was this week. Uh, I talked about it with Ben Varlise and Chris Otero, and kudos to those guys. They stepped up and uh, were willing to talk about porn in the military. It felt like it was an extra taboo subject. Uh, like I was, I w- wasn't able to get uh, other guests on sometimes for logistical reasons. Um, but I really wanted to have a female um, come on the show and, and talk with us. Um, I thought this was one that a woman's point of view would have been really interesting and and uh, would have been nice. But for multiple reasons, um, we couldn't get one. So we ended up, uh, as you would expect in a discussion on porn in the military, the conversation meandered and veered into different areas um, because once you start talking about porn in the military, then you have to talk about uh, you know men and women cohabitating or co-located in the same austere environment. And then what does that mean for sexual relationships? What does that mean for um, how the military has to regulate and regiment? those kind of relationships. Um, how does it do it? How should it do it? Um, all those kind of issues. So uh, really interesting discussion. Um, as always, you know, it, we're not going to be able to fully cover it in an hour, but I think we did a decent job of getting a little bit more than wave tops um, on some of these issues and uh, talking about the pros and cons of porn in the military. And, and it has both. You know, it is a coping mechanism and there's value in that. And it can have obviously significantly deleterious effects on service members and on their relationships and on sometimes their behavior. But you'll hear all about that uh, during the episode. So I won't say too much more about it now. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos. Christopher Otero is a New York native. He was an army brat, and then he served 22 years in the army as an armor and intelligence officer, spent almost all of his career in combat arms and special operations assignments before finishing off his career as the head of an ROTC program. Currently, he works for New York State, and is a volunteer firefighter, which we'll talk about more shortly. Welcome back, Chris. It's been a while. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. And uh, as, I, as I told you, you get special kudos for coming back for a, uh, a tough episode. <laughs> it was scaring everybody else, but we'll talk about that more right. in a minute. Ben Varlis is also here. He is a former U.S. Army Mountain Infantry Platoon Sergeant, served in both domestic and overseas roles as a sniper section leader. He worked in the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq's protective security detail in various roles, and since 2018, he's also provided security consulting services for public and private sectors, including tactical training, physical and information security, executive protection, protective intelligence, risk management, insider threat mitigation, and anti-terrorism. He has earned a BA and an MA in intelligence studies from American Military University, a graduate certificate in cybersecurity from Colorado State University. 
and he is currently in his second year of AMU's Doctorate of Global Security program. Welcome back, Ben. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Pleasure to be back. And I, I take it you still haven't gotten a refund on that graduate c- certificate in cybersecurity, right? <laughs> From the last episode. No, no, not <laughs> not yet. Um, but you know, I did take care of and mitigate some of the technical issues we had last time. Absolutely we were true. Able to, to wargame it beforehand that, and uh, get get off and rolling on time ish. <laughs> that 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 is. Uh, I, I see what passes for excellence at Colorado State University, and I'm duly impressed. Yes, you can mitigate everything on the second attempt. I love it, um, and that's obviously an inside joke for anybody that listened to the previous episode. Ben was on. I'll I'll talk about that in the alibis if anybody wants the backstory. But uh, no, it's it's great to have Ben back on. And as I say to both you guys, you guys get extra special points, which mean nothing, but in the overall scheme of things. But I am glad that you guys are here because this is um, this is a an issue that it seemed like scared everybody. Nobody wanted to. Uh, talk about this with me, which made me feel like I was wrong. But uh, I think it's an important issue, and I'm gonna I'm gonna dime out Charlie. I, I want to say I only because I think it's hilarious. Charlie's excuse I, I think is valid, but it was hilarious that 30 minutes before airing, he called to say he couldn't be on the show because he was at West Point but stuck in traffic and would not make the start time. And I'm sure the traffic was bad, but I was like, dude, it's 30 minutes before the show, and you're on post but you're telling me you can't make this show if you just don't want to talk about porn for an hour you can just tell me that you don't have to make up stuff but apparently the game at wake forest today brought a huge crowd so that was the excuse he was going with and i actually think he's not lying about it but i did think it was hilarious and further added to the stigma of talking about porn in the military so let me start with this i if, for me, and I'm not just saying this because it took us a minute to find people that wanted to, were willing to discuss this today, but does it seem like the subject of porn in the military, unless you're joking about it uh, with your buddies, it seems like it's a bit of a taboo subject in general just to talk about. Like it's something that we, we just don't discuss. It's never really talked about. There's no, you know, it's not part of resilience training. Like, hey, are you watching a lot of porn or are you not watching a lot of porn? You know, it's not part of any kind of official uh, doctrine. It's not, except for General Order Number One uh, on overseas deployments and stuff like that. It, it, does it seem like it's taboo, or is it just me, Chris? What do you think? You know, I think we talk about porn all the time in the military, but what doesn't happen is leaders don't talk about it with their troops, which that's a very different proposition. I mean, you hang out, you know, in the vehicles I've been on, like long MRAP rides or whatever where the only topic of conversation people are talking about is porn. But then, you know, you get <laughs> right. back and right. you have, you know, you have like a lieutenant talking with the soldiers, you have a tune sergeant talking to the soldiers. That's, that kind of conversation is not happening, I don't think. You know, so, you know, it is happening. It's just it's not happening, you know, cross ranks, cross sub, leader, subordinate, whatever. Well, and because it, it's got to be a social, it's a social topic. It's something you talk about at the bonfire at night. It's something you bullshit about. It's something you talk with your buddies about. But yeah, there's no, there's nothing um, kind of formal. You know, we talk a lot about booze. We talk a lot about drinking. We talk about suicide awareness. We talk a lot of things about a lot of things like that officially, um, not just socially amongst ourselves. But um, in my experience, I never heard anybody in authority ever discuss porn. Ben, is that true for you too? Yeah, I mean, coming from a infantry background where. 
there aren't a whole lot of taboos. Um, you know, it, yes, in a, in an official capacity, it's not really talked about. Sometimes it's kind of touched on, um, when discussing mental health issues, but it's usually like a bullet point, um, in yeah. like a suicide awareness, uh, slideshow or, um, you know, if somebody's a behavioral issue, uh, you know, porn is, you know, kind of comes up, Hey, does this person watch too much or, mm. you know, have, uh, you know, the sharp things where, um, you know, does somebody have an inappropriate screensaver or, um, inappropriate materials out, uh, guys are watching stuff and a female, uh, female soldier or service member comes in, comes in the room, could potentially be offended. You know, it's only really in that context yeah. that it's brought up and said, you know, I, I would say probably in the sharp kind of briefing mm -hmm. or, um, you know, like I said, a bullet point in, in the, the suicide prevention, but yeah, it's not as a whole talked about really. And it's, and, it's just kind of like a back room. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it's it, well, that's a great way to think about it. Cause that's actually gets to the heart of, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it because it's there's a little bit of disingenuousness I think when it comes to porn. When it comes to alcohol, we have, for example, we have pretty well established safety briefs, well established <sighs> protocols. Let's say for how you should be drinking, what you're allowed to drink, why you should drink, however much you're allowed to drink, or why you should not, or you know, we 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 put out guidance on that pretty regularly um, and for understandable reasons, but with porn, the only official statements um, I ever remember hearing anything about were, you know, your general order number one on, on deployments and you're not allowed to have any pornographic materials or watch any porn and all that. And of course everybody does anyway. Um, but that was out there as just the official and it wasn't, you know, there's no teeth behind it as far as um, you know, nobody's uh, blocking website access generally um that that happens very rarely if at all um so there's no real teeth behind it but there is hey on paper we're saying you're not supposed to have it so we can break glass in case of emergency and hem you up on this if we need to if it really is an issue um that embarrasses us or, or causes extra scrutiny but generally um there's a tacit indulgence of porn and I guess let's start with this because I, I do want to talk about some other aspects of porn, but first I just want to level set with the day-to-day -day experience of a service member and pornography. I'm not sure how I feel about it one way or another, but I do think that it's worth talking about a little bit more than we have. So my first question, and Chris, I'll throw this to you for a military that has at times had very high profile examples of people not following through with what the quote unquote right answer is supposed to be. And I can think of things like David Petraeus sharing classified information with his you know, lover. And of course that was an adulterous affair. So you have that issue as well um, for how things get prosecuted differently, sometimes based on rank, all those things. It seems like the military sets itself up for hypocrisy right from the get-go when it comes to porn. Because it's out there saying, hey, you're not supposed to be looking at it. 
Um, there's even a, a well-documented story of a JAG officer writing something about you're not allowed to masturbate during this deployment, um, which I don't know if that ever held up, but that was a, a kind of legendary story. Um, and the fact that everybody knows you're going you're gonna to do it anyway. Um, so you're setting soldiers up to just tune out a rule that leadership has put out there. And that obviously can have deleterious second and third order effects if soldiers now start to think, hey, I get to pick and choose which orders I'm going to follow and to what degree I'm going to follow them. Um, am I overthinking this or is that a dangerous precedent uh, that the military kind of brushes under the rug and doesn't really address? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I kind of agree with you in the sense that, you know, this, my experience is that adultery and porn has always, almost always been an included charge to something else, you know, you know, it's a transgress, it's a thing that you additive onto something that you want to pile onto a soldier or leader about, you know, when they cross the line and, you know, that's generally my experience. But, you know, when I kind of thought about the subject of porn, what I kind of realized is that porn is not a new thing for the military by any stretch of the imagination. You go back to the old World War II novels and everything like that. It was always there in the background. I mean, people traded flip books and people painted the more risque bomber art on the inside of the aircraft. You know, instead of the outside of the aircraft, there was that. And then me, I grew up as a military dependent. I mean, like literally in the barracks, my dad would bring me to CQ growing up on military bases. And I can remember snuff films or not snuff films, sorry, different thing. But I can remember like, you know, stag films. <laughs> That's a different podcast. You know, being up, different, podcast yeah. different podcast. But I remember like snack stag films being up on the walls in various rooms back in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, if you go to the PX, you would have Hustler and Penthouse magazine up on the top shelf there the little like you know tan band that they would have up there in the atheist thing and then mm -hmm. of course if you were going to you know korea or going to any of the other overseas bases i mean strip clubs strip shows all that stuff strippers at you know parties those were all the kind of things that just growing up you know even as a kid i knew existed and would see out there so porn has kind of been with us all along i think i think the two things that really totally. have changed in my mind is first of all, the access to it. I mean, first of all, with the pure file sharing services that we saw in the early 2000s, LimeWire, all the rest of them, we all knew the soldiers downrange that would have, you know, the jump drive with, you know, 500, 1,000 videos. You know, you didn't have to go far to find it if that's what you wanted to indulge in. And then, of course, now we have Pornhub, YouPorn, all the other kind of, you know, things that are out there. So I think what has changed in a lot of ways is the access to it, where before, back during the day, you kind of had to go out of your way to find it, or you had to actually expend effort, you know, to consume that material. And if you were really dedicated, you could indulge all you wanted, but for the dilettante or for just a casual passerby, you might see a thing or two, but, you know, it just wasn't something that you could readily get your hands onto it. And as we talk about the nature of addiction out there with the endorphin rush and just keeps you going back and back and back... If you look at Pornhub and YouPorn, they are very much set up for that kind of thing, you know, and that's where I think that we've had a real change. And then, of course, you've had the social changes in the military where we just have a lot more women than we used to, you know. And so right. when you add right. in those gender dynamics that are out there and you add in the fact that, you know, now we're having guys basically, I mean, the country does really crappy on sex education anyways, Guys are learning what they know from porn or from the other folks, and then you throw them in with women on long deployments and things like that. Yeah, it's a recipe for a lot more problems than necessarily what we had in the past. Ben, what if, do you if think? If I could yeah. jump in. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, uh, so to, uh, to Chris's point, um, you know, it goes even farther back than that. I remember reading an article not that long ago where Haldron's Wall, built by the Romans, had phallic images carved into the side and painted on the side of the wall. I mean, this is, you know, several, you know, almost right. 2,000 years old, if not older. And so, you know, it, it is kind of inherent in the culture. But more to Chris's point um, is, you know, the the access is, is, a, is a huge thing. But there are also uh, cultural and societal norm changes that kind of shove porn in your face. Um, you can't throw a rock at an Instagram girl without them having and only fans. And that has bled over into the military too. Um, a lot of service, female service members have gotten into this uh, exhibitionist uh, kind of uh, culture and uh, taken advantage of it. Some commands have kind of stepped on it, but others uh, are gun shy. They don't want even, you know, if it's a male CO, and one of their soldiers, if they approach the soldier and say, hey, you know, this is impacting good order and discipline. Now she cries sexual harassment or something else. Now that commander is hemmed up. Or discrimination. Yeah, even though, sure. you know, it's, I mean, there, and even though, you know, half the company has subscribed to this female soldier's OnlyFans. And, you know, it, it creates those kind of issues um, that you have with the just the the co-ed integration um but you know more to the point you know again the the strip clubs and everything you can't go to a military post without there being four or five strip clubs you know sure. within sure. A, a couple of miles of the gate and so again it's this uh sex and death right kind of uh you know freudian thing that's meld melded together and again it like like i said it goes back to antiquity and, uh, um, you know, the term hooker goes back to the Civil War. Uh, 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 General, I believe he was, I can't remember if he was Union or Confederate. I want to say he was Union, but General Hooker. Oh, General Hooker, had the a Confederate. Of, the Confederate, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Confederate, yeah. yeah. Had a complement of female civilians kind of in like the, the log pack. And they were there to service the troops and keep morale up, and they were known as hookers girls. Therein by the term hookers was kind of born. Um, so again, it's, you know, that, you know, that goes, it's it's kind of touches on the porn, but not really. Well, it's all Because, in you know, they wouldn't yeah. have now. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, now you can't have, you know, uh, escorts deploying with soldiers so here's the next best thing so first right, maybe know, let's you know, let's set the stage for for civilians a little bit and, and just talk about why I, I i think for the three of us it's kind of understood and acknowledged and implicit why this occurs but i just want to i want to foot stomp this a little bit for any civilians listening who may be like what kind of psychopaths are we letting in the military that are so wired for porn and strippers and hookers but i think it's important to say the military, more than anything else, in my opinion, I'll, you guys can correct, change, add, change, delete as you see fit to what I'm saying. But to, for me, the military, more than anything else, is about austerity. Um, whether it was deployments, 
But even in garrison, you're constantly denied things that civilians can get. Once the bell rings at five o'clock, civilians can pretty much do whatever they want. And even many times during the day, they have access to things that, that military members don't. So what you end up with is this tension between discipline and repression. And when discipline starts to morph into repression, um, and especially when you're talking about generally a young male population whose testosterone is running high, that's going to lead to these kind of activities and nobody should be surprised by that. Chris, uh, do you generally agree with that? Is there anything you would add, change, or delete to what I said about that? I kind of disagree, to be honest with you. And I think that, Go ahead. you know, my last my last assignment in the Army was teaching our ROTC detachment. So, you know, I was just exposed to, like, all sorts of college kids. And let me tell you, those kids are just as oversexed as any of the Army soldiers that I basically personally knew. Frankly, I think the military sure. soldiers are just sure. a li- are just a little more honest about it, to be honest with you, because there's so much pretense and artifice when you're on a college campus. But like in the military, they'll just flat out tell you, "Hey, look, I'm going out tonight to basically go get me a piece." And I think that you know, right. frankly, right. that is kind of the thing. But also, there is one aspect of what you just said that I think really does strike home is that you know you spoke of austerity, but I also speak of distance. I also speak of dislocation as well. Is that yes. we are taking yeah. people yes. from their parents' house that are already hormonal because they're 19 to 23 years old, and we're basically putting them places overseas or on military bases that are far away from everybody else. And what happens when people are under austere conditions of austerity or they're under you know positions of stress? Well, they either turn on each other, but that's not what we do in the military. What happens in the military is we bond, and so. What do men that bond with other men do? Well, they drink beer, they you know play fight or whatever. What do men who bond with women do? Uh, they have sex. That's, That's just you know point. simple. It's a great point. It's a great point. And so, point. and then you think about and you think Sorry. about availability as well. Is that our military bases? You know, and this is something that a female soldier that I once had kind of really drove home to me. I didn't think about it this way, but she's right. Is that? You know, for us, when we're off on these podunk military bases, either at Fort Drum or Fort Polk, Louisiana, I got stationed to both, so I know the areas quite well. You know, soldiers will go off range, go off post, and they'll basically stick it in anything they can because that's just the way it is. But for the women who are a little more scrutinizing for that, the local townies ain't doing it for them. So what is their ready access to high-quality young men, you know, that are out there? It's the other soldiers, so where, yeah. you know, the men are getting that's their relief off there, the women are getting their relief from the other soldiers. And that's why, frankly, you know, I used to make jokes about it until I learned that's probably not the wisest thing is that, you know, hey, if you're a female private or you're a female lieutenant, congratulations. The army is going to basically issue you a husband here very shortly and he's going to be another soldier, right. you know, another officer right. or whatever, because that's what happens. That's right. what you all do. But it makes sense when you think about it in those terms. A hundred percent. And I'll, I'll, I'll just say, sorry, Ben, I'll just, I'll just clarify though. What I was saying, um, Chris, I, you won't find necessarily, uh, the ubiquity of like say strip clubs, um, right outside a college campus because for college kids though, there's more access to different things. Certainly the hormones are running as rampant between both military and college kids. But I think the environment is by definition more liberal. It just allows more freedom of movement, more freedom of access for a civilian on college. Whereas in the military, to your point, if you're at Fort Polk, even if you can get off post, it's slim pickings 
So, so that again, that sense of austerity, that sense of deprivation kind of feeds to, to those hormones that are being bottled up and not allowed to unleash, if that makes sense. Yeah. Plus also just college campuses are more of a target rich environment anyways. I mean, you know, 100%. when I was stationed at camp, 100%. when I was stationed at Camp Casey in Korea, I mean, there were like 7,000 soldiers there and maybe 170 women, you know, so, you know, but your college campus, it might be 50, 50 and there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But totally, totally. Sorry, Ben, I cut you off. Um, yeah, no, you're, um, you're good. Uh, I was actually, uh, using that opportunity to try and look up the, the title of a book. Um, I, I wasn't able to find it, but, uh, it was written by a female army captain right about the beginning of, uh, OIF. And she discussed kind of the, the stigmas of females in the military. And it was kind of going to what, um, Chris was saying where, um, you know, their, their options are, you know, the townies or their fellow soldiers, the, the latter being the better option. However, uh, the women that kind of rejected that there's, you know, there was, it was a double-edged sword. You were either, um, you know, the promiscuous, you know, the, the slut in the unit, right. Or you were the ice queen, right? You know, if you rejected right. advances, if you didn't pursue anybody, you know, now you're, now you're the ice queen. And, uh, it actually started a heated, heated discussion between me and ex-wife number one over, <laughs> over that, uh, that book. She had been reading it at the, at the time. And, uh, you know, I was, I was still in <laughs> it. It just, you know, so, th- you know, we have to, uh, as the military as a whole, kind of overcome some of that. Some of the uh, some of the integration has kind of helped, but because it's slow going, um, I know having done some uh, uh, adjacent unit work, um, especially with foreign partners, where uh, females in combat arms you know, has been a thing for a while, like especially the Israelis, um, you know, in almost, in almost everything, but there's still, uh, and even the, the, the women kind of will acknowledge this is there's a, and I know, I know we're getting off in a little bit into the weeds here, but I think it, it goes to, to some of the background, um, with the mentality is, um, you know, like Chris was saying, it's, you know, a lot of the guys, the the mentality at that age and with the training, it's fornicate or fight. You know, that's right, right. That's their their go tos. Now, you know, the um uh you know, the younger the younger women, they're still they're still going through those those stages as well. The fight necessarily isn't there. Um but then, you know, there's uh they're also looking not necessarily looking for their independence, but finding this, uh, uh, you know, self-determination and it's whether, um, uh, you know, in, like in the Israeli military, you know, you see a lot of these women there, even if they don't want it, they get, uh, kind of sheltered and babied by, yeah. Yeah. uh, their male con- counterparts. And in, in some of the, uh, you know, support units within the military, you know, I've, I've seen it as well. Uh, there was a, 
uh, one of the times I was deployed, we actually had a, a disparaging comment for the kind of male protective security detail around their, their female companions. Right. And right. we called them the Remoras. And, you know, the woman may be totally capable of handling herself, but, you know, here's this bubble, whether she wants it or not. And, you know, it's gotten, it's gotten better. Um, but it, it does kind of go to some of the, the roots. Yes. I feel. Well, that's right. Because what we're really talking about is just all the second and third order effects of having two genders in austere environments, uh, deprived of normal comforts and generally young people, but certainly misconduct is not limited only to younger soldiers. Um, but all the ramifications that come with that, and it's, it makes it incredibly complicated. Um, so I think that's good just to level set for civilians that may be listening that, you know, or, or like, you know, what kind of psychopaths are the, are you guys that this is a, a subject that we're bringing up, but I think it's important to kind of set that stage now to the point of porn itself and the way that that plays out in the military. Um, I want to double back on the, um, the point that I was kind of trying to make before and just see if this resonates with you guys at all. I want to, and the point I was trying to make before is about the hypocrisy of porn because it's something that nominally you're not supposed to be doing, but everybody's going to look the other way on that. And the problem with that is that it is implicitly putting it on the soldiers to now pick and choose uh, you know, it's a precedent for a soldier now to go, all right, I got that order and I'm not really going to obey it. And nobody really expects me to obey it. And that just starts to fray, I think, good order and discipline because now, um, you know, you're, you're getting the independent agency to pick and choose which orders you will follow and to what degree you will follow them. And that's never a great precedent, especially in something as regimented as the military. Um, so let me throw that out again, uh, Chris. Let me start with you. A- am I overthinking this, or do you think that is a bit of a dangerous precedent? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think that, first of all, we have to be very specific about what we're talking about when we say that porn is not allowed. It's not allowed overseas for general order number one, and it's not allowed on government right. networks. Right. But as far as, you know, at least the, the military changed very much right. in the last couple of years right. since I got out. You could enjoy it in the barracks if you wanted to. You could you could have a jump drive of stuff and look at it in the privacy of your own home, your own barracks, on your phone. You know, as long as you weren't going to like the children porn aspect of it. But I mean, but just good yes. old whole, good old clean yes. wholesome American porn. Yeah, you could totally do right. that if you wanted to, and no one yeah, cared and, about and, that. I, and thanks for pointing that out, Chris. Yeah, you, thanks for pointing that out. You're absolutely right. And I'm talking uh, my experience, like yours, we was a lot of time spent overseas. So I kind of gravitate right to that. And thank you for, for pointing that out. Yes. Let's talk about just the, the overseas uh, aspect of it when for very understandable reasons, we're told, yeah, that goes against general order number one and general order number one exists for a reason. Right. So, you know, I think there's, I mean, I think there's that also, you know, one thing that I kind of wanted to round about, cause that all this, we talked about a little bit about the gender relationships we talked a little bit about porn, and we talked a little about government networks, all that. But there are two other factors here that I think environmental factors that really kind of change the game up a lot. And one of them is a new problem, i.e. cell phones. 
it used to be that people didn't have the ability to sit there and record any of their things or anything like that. But I can tell yeah. you in the first half of my career, other than the occasional random Polaroid shot somebody had, you didn't really see revenge porn or any of those kind of problems. Yeah. But then once cell phones became an issue and people started filming themselves, then it started like just exploding through the roof and that was a problem. But then the other thing, this is a very old problem, is just the binge drinking in the military is that anytime you add drinking into, you know, the kind of binge drinking you see in the military into the mix, a lot of this stuff starts to get really, really weird. You know, the videos start sure. coming out, people sure. start losing sure. inhibitions, you know, and it kind of dovetails into a lot of stuff. But to round it back about the porn, as we we're talking about, I've put a lot of thought into it as far as, you know, in a lot of ways, I look at porn much like alcohol drinking. I could go on to Pornhub here in about 10 minutes, watch five minutes of Pornhub, and I wouldn't be changed by it because guess what? I'd be bored. I'd be like, that's five minutes of my life wasted, and I would just move on to something else. You know, and it's much like drinking a beer. Some people, they can just drink a single beer or do a shot, and they'd be fine. They'd go on with their own life. It's sure. the abuse of sure. it that I think is the biggest problem. And so setting aside any morality or any religious you know, objections that people might yeah. have to it is that yeah. I don't think that you know, porn itself is the problem. It's the abuse of it that is a problem. And I think that's where we start getting to some of the other issues. And I do think that it's an important problem to consider as part of the umbrella of all the other issues that soldiers go through with a dislocation, with the gender yep. politics that actually happens, the, you know, the binge drinking. I think all of it kind of comes as a package deal because in my mind, abuse of porn is a symptom of something else that has to be addressed either through leadership, through counseling totally. or even legal. If it basically goes down that far down that road. And so I just think that that's kind of, it's my blank point. I kind of know I threw a lot of stuff into there. So all no, that no, no, now, no, we'll that's great. Out. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack from that. And I'll, I'll pimp Ben, ben out to answer some of this stuff. Um, and I'll, I'll phrase it this way, Ben. What do you think? Do you think there's a tension between porn and resiliency? Obviously, we spent a lot of time in the military talking now about mental and emotional resiliency. Is porn a help or a hindrance to that or both? So to you know, to Chris's point, um, you know, he he did touch on that there, you know, vice is vice. And, you know, porn, um, you know, especially in a the combat theater, um, you know, somebody having porn in combat versus having alcohol is way different. Both are violations of general order number one, whereas, you know, platoon sergeant, first sergeant, CO would overlook, you know, guys having porn on their phones or, you know, magazines that they bought off a, you know, local, you know, the local economy, whatever. Um, you know, there's kind of a, okay, if they're if they're going to have a outlet, let them have this outlet because it's not right. really hurting them, or at least that's the mindset. It is a coping mechanism. So you know, it's it's the the uh, the pragmatic approach. It's you know the end justifies the means, but it's also you know the lesser of two evils, um, as it were. Yep. And if I could. If I could touch also on your your original question about the please. hypocrisy, yeah, please you know do. there there is uh, 
in in contemporary times with the access to digital media, web-based platforms, all of that, um, you know, there there has become a kind of double standard. I, I I started talking about a little bit. Chris touched on a little bit too, where uh, you know it it kind of came to light with the Marines United scandal a few right. years back, right. and you know there was a there's a clear distinction between the two types of scandals that were involved in that. One was pictures being taken without uh, the subject's knowledge. And, you know, that is flagrant, you know, a flagrant violation, you know, not good. But then there's the the exhibitionist part where, you know, these female soldiers are sharing pictures either with partners or online in general, you know, the OnlyFans thing. Right. And so, you know, I I have issue with the, the revenge porn kind of statutes and everything anyway, because if you are given this, it, it's like a, it's like a gift. Um, you know, and, you know, unpopular opinion, slap me on the hand for it, but somebody gives it to you. It's yours now. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, sharing it. I mean, yeah, it's kind of sleazy, but again, does it go into the realm of UCMJ action? You know, Mm -hmm. does it go into the realm of, criminal prosecution and then you know uh larry flint fought you know all the way up to the supreme court over this very issue and you know should somebody have the right to share this and you know that's again getting getting a little bit into the weeds right but again you start getting into the marines united thing kind of brought this brought some of this to the forefront where okay yes the the unauthorized pictures the the you know stalker pictures whatever you want to call it that was bad right. and those those dudes deserve to be crushed but then the other side of it is okay well these girls are putting the stuff up on Tinder, on Tumblr, uh, their OnlyFans, a Patreon account. Like, I, I there's probably half a dozen sites like this. Um, you know, when you look at a lot of the Instagram girls, uh, there's a huge calling for, or not calling, but uh, a huge following of uh, vets and current service members right. who dress scantily clad. Uh, I mean, I could name half a dozen, but I won't just for, you know, their own privacy. Well, they sake, don't need the followers like anyway, probably. It, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need, the, it's, right. it's glorifying something that, you know, we're, um, you know, the, the negative connotations from the discussion that we're having, sure. uh, it doesn't need to get associated, but it's, it's out there. There's a huge following for it. And so again, there's this kind of hypocrisy in the military where it's accepted, but not. Yeah. I mean, I want to so, agree with, I want to, I want to touch yeah, on the hypocrisy in a second, this. but I do want to, I mean, I do want to contravene something Ben said a little bit is that, I mean, I think we have to take it in a context-by-context context basis. I mean, obviously someone running an OnlyFans out there 
in my right, I would agree with you, is kind of giving up their right to, you know, you know, they put the property out there. And, you know, yeah. that is something that clearly, you know, you really shouldn't complain about if it does get out. But, you know, when I was in Iraq in 2007, 2008, I had two soldiers of mine. There are boyfriends that, you know, they were very much into were at one of our remote patrol bases. And these two girls made a video or not a video up. So took some pictures of themselves in the shower, uh, clothed, but in lingerie. I mean, they were very tame pictures, to be honest with you. But they sent them directly to their to their guys. And of course, what did the guys do? They showed all their buddies. And, you know, I'm sure the conversation went to some version of, hey, I'll show you this, but don't tell anybody about it. But then right, guess what? Right, right. A few days later, I'm in someone's talk somewhere and I have a freaking lieutenant colonel saying, hey, these two soldiers, they're your soldiers. You want to see these pictures of them <laughs> and all that? Not in a, I want to get them, in, not in a, like, you need to do something about it, but like, hey, check out these two hotties. And I'm like, yep, they're definitely my soldiers. And that kind of spiraled out. And in the end, I had to talk, you know, the JAG lawyer for the brigade out of basically trying to hit these girls up for lesbian conduct for violations of homosexuality, which, of course, was a thing back then, which I, you know, luckily for me, my my brigade sergeant major would just hammer that home and said, you're stupid. We're not doing that. But that being said, in a case like that, I don't think these girls did anything wrong and they had an expectation of privacy. And I think. That is an issue. Now, are they stupid for basically putting video, putting pictures out there to their boyfriends? I would say any woman that, you know, that takes a picture of themselves, you know, that's a very, very right. dangerous thing. I would advise people not to do that. But I think in the case where there was an expectation of privacy between one consenting adult to the other consenting adult, we do have to sit there and, you know, take people down when that actually happens. And I think that the soldiers that, you know, that shared it, they should have gotten some kind of punishment for that because, you know, that's just not a good look, particularly when you're attacking credibility of female service members on your team, utilizing privileged information that you received. So I think from the contextual standpoint, we have to take these in each and every case on the merits of themselves and not necessarily on a blanket, you know, on a blanket feeling. But getting back to the hypocrisy thing, I think I put something in the chat is that, you know, thinking about it, is the problem of hypocrisy not lying in the soldiers, but lying in general order number one itself? Because, you know, oh, when yeah. I've, served oh, with a, right. I've served with a lot of different militaries out there, you know, side by side, and they have a lot more lenient ideas about alcohol downrange, porn downrange, right. you know, things like that. You know, and I think it's because they implicitly realize that, you know, hey, soldiers need to release and... You know, if you ever watch the movie Master and Commander, where you know the captain says, "I'd rather have my guys three sheets of the wind on occasion to entertain a mutiny," you know, I think that you know maybe they're onto something, and we're the ones that are screwed up. You know, I think about the hypocrisy aspect of it. In my 2010 Afghanistan rotation, they changed General Order Number One subtly to allow soldiers to have sexual relations downrange, but they couldn't have them in living spaces. And I remember at the time going like, well, where the hell are they allowed to get it on? On the hoods of Humvees? I mean, are you kidding me? This is a stupid change. I mean, it's just, it was nuts. So, you know. And and this is, yeah. But these are are real problems because you're dealing with human beings that are going to do what human beings do and that have, are subject to all the pressures that human beings are subject to, but in a very inhuman situation, a deployed environment that's austere, where you're stripped of all these comforts. And I think this, um, I, I, I'm going to be the one to 
savage my own topic and go off the rails here a little bit, but I think this is what leads to all the discomfort with the uh, social changes inside the military, whether it's women into combat arms, females in the military writ large, um, gays in the military, although not not because of homosexuality per se, but because sexual the more sexually eligible people that are in play, the more these issues start to come up because this is what people do and this is what people should do. The problem is what the military requires is is to be honest not normal. It's it's an incredibly abnormal lifestyle, and therefore what actually fits somewhat gracefully and easily into it is going to be a very small regimented form of life that is not diverse that is not does not necessarily easily um it it, it can't easily uh be a one for one uh, apples to apples comparison with civilian life because it just is it's not the same as civilian life and again I'm talking mostly overseas but even like you talked about before Chris on base it, it's just it's hard to draw a, a same same comparison, and I think that makes it implicitly complicated. Now, complicated doesn't mean to be impossible, you know. It just, but I think this is where these the the conversation gets really complicated because when it comes to something like porn, you know, we don't want to put out laws that we know or orders that we know are not going to be followed, right? I think that's I I was never in a position really to give orders, but. I think that's a pretty standard way of thinking, and the problem is, is we're we're by nature going to have to do that because we got to nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Some things we can't hold everybody's feet to the fire equally. Yet we need to have something in writing to mitigate some of the more extreme concerns. Ben, you look like yeah, you I mean, look like you were going somewhere with that. Yeah. So uh, to to the uh, a point to, that Chris was kind of making, and that you kind of were following up with, there is a, uh, a psychosocial aspect to this, um, kind of intrinsic to American culture, American society, where, um, there is a, there is an inherent hypocrisy there too. You know, we we were founded by Puritans and we still have a lot of kind of underlying Puritan ideals against pornography against drinking. I mean, I, I live in Colorado and we had prohibition until 1959. Uh, it wasn't until probably 10, 15 years ago that liquor stores were allowed to be open on Sundays and that, uh, you know, you could even buy anything more than three, two beer in gas stations and, uh, uh, supermarkets. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that aspect to it. You know, I grew up in the Netherlands and you want to talk about a liberal democracy. I mean, that's probably as as far left as you can go, where, you know, at age 13, I could go into a nightclub and order a drink. Um, you know, 10-year-old kids are buying a, a case of beer for their old man, and it's strapped on the back of their bike, and shopkeepers don't even blink an eye. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if they do, you know, I buy a bottle of rum, and they if the guy looked at me weird as, oh, head design Kadocha, you know, it's a present for my uncle. And they'd put it in a brightly colored bag and put a bow on it. And, you know, sex was the same way. Sure. And there's, you know, you'd have full nude lotto commercials. I swear every single shampoo body wash commercial was at the very least topless. 
all the beaches were topless. Even in the uber Christian Kothavik, you know, the beach was topless. And it was just, you know, uh, they everybody was raised with it kind of a, a healthy respect. Uh, because it was, you know, a constant, whereas, you know, here in the States, it's, oh, you know, you can't buy cigarettes until you're 18, 21 now, you know, can't buy alcohol till you're 21. Sure. Um, you know, limitations on porn and, oh, this is not acceptable. And, you know, granted, some of it's going the complete other way where we're having like drag queen story hour, which I don't think a lot of kids are like really prepared for. But again, it's it's kind of uh, inherent in our culture, and that you know the uh, the military being kind of like the microcosm or like the sure. the the cutaway of society. But there's a spotlight on it. It kind of exacerbates and highlights some of the some of the issues. Totally, we're going to reflect society's problems. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, sorry, you. Uh, I went to Ben right as you were about to talk. Yeah, you know, I'm going to defend the institution, though, of the military, though, because they have a very complex and challenging problem set. I mean, you know, they had, you know, we have the folks and we have both, we have both genders in, we have, you know, all the social changes that have occurred, you know, and, you know, they have to contend with this. And the military does care about its image. And that's not always a bad thing. I mean, image basically mm-hmm. supports recruiting, image basically supports support from the American people, you know. We do have an image, you know, and I think that the contract we have with the American people about, look, give us your sons and daughters, and they may get killed overseas. People are willing to basically understand that, but if they're going to get killed at Fort Hood by another soldier because of porn or because the dating, that's a lot harder of a transaction and a lot harder of a contract to make with the American people. So the military, you know, as it does, likes to have blanket solutions to big problems, you know, instead of yeah. basically dealing with yeah. it and trusting yeah. their leaders to deal with it at the micro level. And sometimes that is a losing proposition because the leaders at Fort Hood certainly did not distinguish themselves, you know, in this latest dust up. But at the right. end of the day, the military is just like, you know, it is best to say no to all of it and just not have to yeah. deal with it, yeah. you know, rather than, you know, try to allow to trust the commanders and make better commanders and make better NCOs that understand this at some level that, you know, hey, look, we got to deal with these issues and we kind of know how to do it because we're closer to the soldier. And, you know, there you go. I think there is hope for the generations up ahead because I can tell you from the ROTC standpoint, I think the kids that I was putting through that were becoming lieutenants get this dynamic a lot better than all three of us did because we just came up in a different kind of world and a different kind of Thing. You know, look, and it was changing. I mean, believe me, it was changing a lot as I was coming in, but still, it was just a different time. And I think that the people now have a the soldiers that I see and the kids that we see, and even as a volunteer firefighter, I'm around 21 to 23 year olds all the time, and they have a much different outlook on these sorts of issues that we are uncomfortable with or we are a little disdainful with. They have a much different take on it. I think it's a matter of time that I think the military will get there. But in the meantime, the military needs to figure it out. And I don't think the blanket solution is working for them in many cases. That's right. And they need to figure yeah. it out because yeah. Fort Hood was a big black guy. And we can't have too many more of those. You know, too Chris, many, really briefly, just break down the Fort Hood's uh, story 
just for people that might not be tracking it. And maybe go, wait, what happened at Fort Hood? Well, Fort Hood was a basket of stories, really, is that they've become kind of both fairly and unfairly kind of the poster child for, you know, for male-on-woman violence in the military, where female soldiers are turning up dead at the hands of fellow soldiers, you know, and each one of these cases has a little bit of a different, you know, tinge to it. But generally, it's the, you know, soldier dating soldier, soldier breaks up with soldier, you know, and then... You know, there you go. Guy gets pissed about it and then ends up killing the woman. And like I said, each one of these cases has a different thing to it. But where it becomes a lot bigger of an issue is the military response to it. I don't think you're ever going to change that first problem because that's just life. You see it out in society and those problems happen out there. But how the leadership actually deals with it, whether they attack it, you know, because in a lot of these cases, there were warning signs leading up to it where, you know, the woman soldier was trying to get, you know, a restraining order or she was going to commander or letting it be known through her subordinate leadership that, hey, this is an issue. And it really wasn't taken seriously for various reasons. Some people are like, well, you know what? You deserve it. Or, you know what? That soldier's a good soldier. Or, hey, I don't want to deal with it right now because I'm busy. All the various things out there, you know, and this has now happened. I mean, I hate to put a number on it, but it's, I think it's happened like three or four times now at Fort Hood. Yeah. Like in the last oh, two years title, where they've been oh, yeah, yeah, where yeah. they up there. Yeah. And to be honest with you, you can find it at Fort Bragg too, because it was happening when I was there. It was even happening at Fort Drum when I was there. I mean, it was just it's an issue. And as I said before, is that the military cares about its image. And the American parents will give us their kids and let us take them to war, and possibly they will die out there, and they are fine with that transaction because they understand that, but they don't understand is their son or daughter coming to a post and getting killed sure. by another soldier. And we can't have too many more of those happen before we're going to have a recruiting problem. We're going to have a credibility problem with the American people. Oh, listen, I, uh, 100%. And the Vanessa Guillen uh, case was shocking. I think this is maybe the fourth time we've brought it up on the on the podcast. Um, and And that's not including all the times we made fun of Fort Hood, which is also a very long laundry list at this point. Um, and yeah, justifiably so. And I think, Chris, what you're getting at is something that I think anybody can appreciate, that the U.S. military is a big bureaucracy. It's not going to have customized solutions that are going to work for 100% of the people involved. It is. It can't pivot on a dime. It's not a person. It's And it's also not a religion. It's not here to address all the sins and evils of each individual person and be able to to mitigate them or give you some, you know, soul salve where you just feel much better about yourself. It, it's a job, it's a profession, and it's a big bureaucracy. So it's going to be one size fits all, big blanket statements, um, probably overcorrections uh, are going to happen frequently in one direction or another. And that, and as I say, I, I, as you said, Chris, I agree. I think we can cut the military a lot of slack. At the same time, I think we can also look and see how much, how many of these issues need to be mitigated by the military itself, as far as punishments, judicial punishments, or um, orders, official orders, and how many need to be mitigated socially, just in the culture of the military without judicial punishments, but just changing the mindset. And both of the, neither one of those is easy, but I think um, this is the nature of doing a very 
strange, unnatural job with human beings that have certain levels of expectations. And there's probably no right answers for it. Um, I want to pivot really quickly because I know we're running short on time and I don't want to take up too much of y'all Saturday, but I feel remiss if we didn't touch on bad guys and porn because uh, lest we cast all the aspersions only on our own side, uh, let it be known that uh, we're still a hell of a lot more righteous than a lot of the bad guys we see out there. And I, without just asking you guys for war stories about the different kinds of vile porn that you've seen on bad guy phones and all that in your in your careers, um, which I know we all have, um, talk about just how what you what your takeaway is from seeing all that content and going, wow. So Al Qaeda that was saying X, Y, and Z about women was also doing all this with women or Al Shabaab was doing this or ISIS was doing that. Um, and, and seem to be all into this. Um, and w- what's your takeaway when you come across that stuff? How does it affect you? What does it make you think about the bad guys? What does it make you think about, uh, porn in general, or is this just all young male problems? Is, can that be grouped under that heading? Ben, let me start with you. Uh, so I, I it, it's good that you brought this up. Uh, it, it actually is going to change my, my shout out, uh, a little bit. Okay. Um, so I've I've worked with uh, I volunteer with uh, Operation Underground Railroad, which combats a lot of sex trafficking, specifically child sex trafficking. And it's it's unfortunate that it occurs, but it occurs because there's a market for it. Um, you know they they in fact have a term for it. It's called sex tourism, and you know that's. People who fly out to Thailand, uh, South America, South and Central America for the, or Haiti for the explicit reason of, you know, having sex, being involved with yeah. this. And, and usually with underage people who are under the influence of some sort of narcotic that was forced on them. And so it's, uh, you know, Operation Underground Railroad has done a monumental job. It's run by, uh, I'll, I'll save that for the shout out, but, um, uh, I think it's, I think it's important to understand that it would not exist at least not in the size and scale. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry if there was not a market for it, if people weren't buying it, it wouldn't be there, you know, prostitution, porn, whatever. So, it's a supply and demand. I'll turn it over to you, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, how about you? Well, I mean, as a guy that has gone through Christ, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of instances of DocX out there, porn on objectives is pretty ubiquitous. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting when you don't find it, to be honest with you. Uh, However, I kind of have two takes on it. You know, one is that. You know, re-undersell the idea of sex as a motivation for jihad, you know, for the foreign fighters that are out there. We really undersell that because you think about a lot of the population of guys that are out there that get involved with it. You know, you have obviously the, you know, young men from overseas that, you know, live in very depressed places, not a lot of economic advantages at all, not a lot of prospects for them, not a lot of access to women. And the idea that they can go be, you know, a, that they can go out there and be a jihadist and be a holy warrior, 
and you know, and possibly, you know, be able to take the spoils of war is a very powerful motivator for some of them. Sure. Then also you factor in, you know, the Western, you know, born, you know, jihadists who go over to, you know, ISIS over in Syria, places like that. A lot of these guys, once again, they're very discombobulated from the societies that they're part of. They see these things that are out there and they don't really have a lot of prospects themselves. And the idea that they can go out there and live their hero journey over in, you know, in Syria, Aleppo, Afghanistan, or any one of these places, we way, way undervalue that as a motivation. And I would just would hope for the people that are in the business of deprogramming these guys or doing counter messaging would actually understand that because quite frankly, you would explain it to people overseas about it and they just would not get it. And that's something that I think that we really need to consider as we think about the long term about how we deal with these folks. But the other aspect of it is that I think it makes them very human in a way because in so much that we don't understand them, they do not understand us. They see our reactions with, you know, having female soldiers in our ranks. They see things like Pornhub and YouPorn and Jersey Shore on AFN and all that. And believe right. me, right. insurgents know what's on AFN because they have, you know, penetration onto our bases and the local national workers will tell them all about that. They don't get us. And for some strange reason, they think porn is an avenue towards getting us. They will sit there and they will watch it and they'll be like, man, this must be how they're like because right. look at them. And it's kind of the, you know, the coveting of the unknown, I think, is that, yeah. you know, they're just like, we don't understand them, but this seems to be something they value because look at how much they have and look how easy they make <laughs> right. it. Look at, how, look at how easy they make it and, you know, how easy they make it to get it. This, there must be something about these people that is in these things that we need to basically have. And then, of course, you know, once they see it, you know, they're just like, oh, my God, this is great. And then there you go. And this is before we can get into the deviant stuff. And that's not even worth talking about because I think, you know, we, I think we overplay that. I mean, like I said, tens of thousands of instances of DocX. And most of it was pretty plain vanilla kind of stuff. I mean, stuff that you're like, you must think this is pretty crazy stuff, but this is pretty standard sex. You know, but... You know, but yeah. there you go. I mean, I no, I I, I appreciate you bringing up a, a bunch of those points. I think it's, I agree. I think first off, the expat American jihadist social rejection, I think is, I think that's a huge motivating factor. Um, that if that even if even when they have economic opportunities. But it's the social rejection and how much, and let's be honest, that's true for any young male. And we're talking generally about males anyway, but for any, any young male, social rejection is a huge motivating factor. And, um, and certainly when we look at jihadists, that factors in and rejection from women is, a, that's a hell of a motivator. Um, so I think there's that. I also think, um, yeah, when you talk about the porn that they watch and that how they think that might be representative of us. We don't do ourselves any favors by leading with our chin there. You know, that if, if, if porn is our, is such a major exponent of the United States, we're really playing into an awful lot of stereotypes uh, that are paraded out there about us from people who have no other way of vetting that information. They go, okay, well, if this is, this is what the mullah is telling me and this is what I'm seeing. All right. That lines up. These people are freaking you know, sex fiends over here. And even though I sneakily like it, you know, if I'm a jihadist, but at the same time, oh yeah, but they are the devil, definitely, you know? And so that, that cycle of self-loathing 
um, and then uh, reinforcement of the propaganda is certainly harmful. I will say this though, Chris, for um, about the the weird stuff. So I had a lot of assignments in semi-permissive areas. So we're not necessarily talking about jihadists whose content I was seeing. Sometimes it was stuff that I, I would see in, in other contexts, even sometimes people that were working for us or befriending us or trying to befriend us um, for logistics reasons or whatever. And I think the most jarring instance um, that, and I'll share this, not just for shock value, but I think I want to make a point about it. It was a woman, middle-aged woman who was single and she was a landlord and owned some big buildings that we were looking at leasing space from. And um, she had on her phone, a uh, child porn video and I didn't know whose children they were. I didn't know if they were her nieces or nephews. She didn't own have children herself. I didn't know if they were nieces or nephews. I didn't know if they were neighbors. I didn't know who they were, but the fact that she was so not the stereotype of who I thought would look at something like this. And I don't know if it was shared with her. Um, and if she happened to have it on her phone, cause she might not have been sophisticated enough to delete it or something and somebody had sent it to her. There's a million reasons that it might have ended up there. Um, but it was jarring to me. And what uh, to kind of go get to your point, Ben, of what you brought up before, what it reinforced for me was the ubiquity of evil. Um, and the fact that in so many of that in our, our, there's so much evil in mankind's desires, generally speaking. That, uh, you know, the military is not always the mechanism to solve all of those. We're not a religion. We're, as I said, we're not, you know, a social organization. You know, we're not a charity. Um, but what that exposes you to and what, and, and the way that you kind of lose faith in humanity and realize how much of that evil is bubbling up, I, I think is, um, is sometimes jarring. Yeah, uh, so part of my uh, expansive background and and various things, I I was head of security at a a gentleman's club for a few years, and it was interesting to watch kind of some of that progression where the pseudo-benign dancers graduated fairly quickly to porn and then prostitution, usually uh, at the hands of an exploitive individual um, initially was a boyfriend and, you know, in reality became a pimp. Um, and you, you see this, see this a lot. And, you know, I, I, you know, with the lead up that you kind of gave and some, some of the stuff that Chris touched on, you know, there is uh, like you said, we don't do ourselves any favors, you know, the jihadists, I mean, even Osama bin Laden, when they raided his compound, right. Uh, in in 2011, you know, he had porn on his his hard drives. They found it during the SSCs, and you know, we kind of established this uh, uh, like cultural expectation. You know, they're coming from a sexually repressed society uh, that's already very patriarchal. Doesn't have a whole lot of respect for women. They come to a Western liberal democracy and have certain expectations. And, you know, we saw this in 2000, uh, uh, shortly after the, the Arab spring uprisings yep. with the mass influx, yep. um, 
at you know New Year's Eve on I think in it was Frankfurt. 2013 yeah. in Frankfurt and Colm, yeah, f- where yeah, 15 literally and hundreds started. of women in one yeah. night are are being assaulted at, in one night, and uh, again it's you know you combine the two and it's their fault, but it's not. You know, again, we kind of set the stage. They are exposed to it as, you know, we become more of a globalist society and, you know, people in Dubai and Saudi Arabia, they have access to Pornhub and X videos and everything else. And so there's that, again, that kind of expectation coupled with the, the clash of cultures and, you know, it does kind of cultivate, you know, for us, it's, it's evil. And, you know, there are exploitative things. Like I, like I said, the, the graduation, um, in how people get caught up in human trafficking and sex trafficking, um, you know, it's, and, and women like you, like you were exposed to, like you were talking about women are sometimes the vectors to draw them in because it's not expected. It's, it's safe. And, um, so that, Yeah, that kind of I guess touches on. on no, what that's you, right. You know, I mean, answer your question. Like a lot of these things we talk about, there's no way we're going to do this adequate justice in an hour. But um, I think this is a beyond wave tops, um, you know, primer on this. And uh, guys, I I appreciate you guys taking the trip with me just to talk about it a little bit. Chris, tell me how volunteer firefighting's going, and uh, now that you're in the game, do you do you want to revise your pitch to everybody to become volunteer firefighters? No, I mean, I just want to double down on it. You know, a couple, about several weeks ago, we ended up responding to a call. This this typical, you know, the motor vehicle accident on the highway and all that. It was, it was nothing to it. I mean, everyone was all right and all that. But usually what happens with a motor vehicle accident is that you turn it over to the cops very quickly. I think that was one thing I was a little surprised about as a volunteer firefighter is that unless you're in like some deep structure fire, you're not there for very long. You're there just to make sure, render everything mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm you know, package casualties if you're there, you then just move on out. So usually we're off the objective pretty quickly. But in this particular case, you know, I guess the cops are having a hard time getting there. So we end up spending about 45 minutes on the side of the road just sitting there. And I'm with a hockey player, a real old dude that's been doing it forever. And, you know, you know, very young female EMT. And we're sitting on the side of the road waiting for stuff to happen, just watching the cars go by. And all of a sudden, I just had one of those like historical resonant moments where I was like, my God, this was my military career. Half of it was just sitting around waiting for something to happen. But what was weird about it was that I missed it. And I was like, this was what I wanted to Mm. do. And so the point Mm. that I'll double back on from double back on with volunteer firefighting is that we all have our little pet theories about why veterans sometimes have a hard time getting out. And one of mine is just that you go from Mother Army, which is like all-encompassing, you're with your buds, you know, you're in this cocoon of stuff, and then you're off into the world again, where, you know, you don't have that ready-made group of friends. You don't belong to anything, per se. And for some people, that's liberating, but I think yeah. for a lot of us, it's a lot more disconcerting than what we basically let on. And I think what happens is that volunteer firefighters, of which make up 70% of all the firefighters in the country... Is something that you can get into very easily. And quite frankly, it is the closest thing to the military that I loved, the parts of the military I loved about, which was being part of something, 
getting on a truck and going out there to the objective. You don't really have to do a lot of the army bureaucracy BS. You know, the firefighting, the fire service has some of that. But if you're not a chief or a lieutenant or a captain, you're not really dealing with it. You're just getting on the truck and going and going to do, you know, whatever the task is that particular day. Frankly, it's awesome. I mean, it's got me back in shape. It is, you know, gotten me with some purpose. It is a time commitment, obviously, for, you know, for obviously for the training aspect of it. And choose your level of involvement. If you're a volunteer, you don't have to respond to every call. But you find that you'll want to. So I think when we take a look at veterans out there and we talk about things that you can do to basically stay, stay part of the community, stay active, become part of something, I think the Volunteer Firefighting Corps, the fire service, is an awesome thing to do. Uh, frankly, I'm serving around with a lot of vets in the, vol- in the Volunteer Fire Department. Some have more than others. But it's like being part of the VFW, except it's a cool VFW, not these sad drinking beers at the you know, at the bar with the other 70-year-old VFW. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. So I think that, yeah, yeah. you know, as far yeah. as the volunteer firefighter, I'll put a plug in, in it, is that if you're looking for something to do and you want to be part of something, you could do you could do a lot worse than being a volunteer firefighter. And, uh, yeah, that's my pitch. No, I, I've, I've relayed that. Ever since you first said it, I've relayed that to people. Um, I've had, not even intentionally, just... It's come up several times, I think, with the veteran suicide thing, veterans transitioning and trying to find purpose again, um, or even just uh, people in general trying to find uh, uh, you know, a mission for themselves and to leverage their military experience. I, I, th- I think it's a great idea. I'm a big fan. Um, ben, tell me about Operation Underground Railroad then. Yeah, so uh, like I was kind of leading into earlier, um, it was founded by a uh, Homeland Security investigator with DHS. Um, he realized very, uh, his name is Tim Ballard, realized very quickly uh, the U.S. government uh, could not and would not do enough to substantially mitigate what he was seeing there at the border and, you know, across across the country. Uh, so he, organized, he founded this nonprofit, um, Operation Underground Railroad. Um, and they travel across the world, uh, partner with uh, local jurisdictions um, and and local national partners to combat sex trafficking. Uh, they've conducted hundreds of operations. Um, again, a lot of it is partnering with uh, with local with local governments, not directly getting involved. They do have some jump what they call jump teams, which are uh, advisors. A lot of them are former military, former law enforcement, um, sometimes current and active, just on a hiatus, um, and and do a lot. Again, they focus predominantly on child sex trafficking, but kind of run run the gamut there. Uh, if you're interested in volunteering, like I said, they do a lot of stuff stateside as well. Um, everything from fundraisers and events to, again, the jump teams, operational type things. Uh, their website hey, is ben, O-U-R. So, sorry, yep. uh, not to cut you off in the middle of the website, yep. but what kind of stuff do you do? Uh, like besides the fundraisers, what what kind of, if you're on the jump team, what does that mean? When you say operational stuff, what does that actually mean? So with the, the operational side, again, it's a lot of uh, kind of, uh, think of it like foreign internal defense training, uh, okay. same kind of things you would do, uh, on a met team or, uh, one of these 
uh, mission training teams where you're showing, okay, uh, local national forces like the Haitians, for example, gotcha. uh, and Haitian police. Hey, these are the things you look for. Um, these are the people like they'll, they'll actually run undercover sting operations, kind of set up these traffickers say, yeah, hi, Hey, I want to buy, you know, these three girls, or I want to buy three girls, sever everything up and just hand it over to local nationals. But these jump teams then also, uh, you know, they'll do conduct some surveillance. They'll mm -hmm. partner, uh, and show good tactics as opposed to just, you know, the, some of the, the, uh, third world barnstorming we've seen. Sure, sure. Um, so it's, a, the, the operation goes off a lot more smoothly. Um, uh, but 99% of the time it's, they're not hands-on. They're kind of, uh, in they're the back. Advising. Yeah. Hey, making sure everything is above board. Um, and that it, it goes, um, uh, goes well. Uh, there's a great Amazon Prime video that kind of highlights some of their operations. Uh, it's called Operation Toussaint, and it kind of goes through the foundation and then an operation in Haiti and how they set it up. And this is pretty much, uh, this is how I got involved. I saw the, the video and was like, you know, this is something I want to do. I want to help with. Um, and give the so uh, give the website again because I, I cut you off when you were oh, yeah. giving that out. No, no worries there. Um, it's uh, o u r rescue dot org, and you know when you're volunteering, they'll have you do a a quick little five minute class to get certified, and then uh, they have a. a bunch of different jobs that you can apply to or just volunteering they have a ton of local chapters um you know try and find one in your your area they have a fairly large facebook presence as well um you know google operation underground railroad and you'll probably run into two dozen two dozen links and i'm going uh, from it's a it's a really good cause i'm going from memory here but uh just real briefly just so i satisfy my own curiosity was there controversy around tim ballard i know i've heard that name i know there's articles written about him what was the what was the naysaying what was the controversy um so there's there has been a a couple of a couple of things uh he's his faith is not well respected um and so there was some aspect of that. He has adopted a couple um, of his rescuees uh, that caused a little bit of a dust up. Um, and he's partnered with Glenn Beck with the Nazarene Fund mm -hmm. uh, that helps Christians in Middle East countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and they were involved in some of the Afghan evacuations. Yeah. So there've been, there've been a few controversies also the, the level and extent to which the jump teams get involved, um, came under, came under some scrutiny as well. Um, but again, he, he knows, he knows the rules. Tim's been trying to keep everything as much above board, uh, as he, as he can. Um, you know, unfortunately when you're, when you're partnering with local governments to, you get what you you get the hand that you're dealt there. Yeah, that's dicey. And yeah. you know Hades, Hades one of those that's you know always, you know what week is it? Yeah. And right. as far as who's in charge and. So. Yeah, that, I, that's interesting. Yeah, I, um, it'd be interesting to talk to you about that more um, down the road. Maybe even uh, 
I, I got to get smarter on that. But yeah, that's because I, I can imagine Department of State probably has a lot of thoughts. I bet he's run to a lot of issues and cross currents with them. And I bet they have a lot of opinions about him. And, and, I, and I think there's implicit dangers in trying to do things in foreign countries, especially with ex-service members. I, I can I can anticipate probably some of the issues that, that they would deal with. Um, interesting, interesting stuff. Guys, I don't want to take up your entire Saturday. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for being here. This was just great. Thanks for having us. Thank you, sir. No worries to everybody else. Go ahead and subscribe if you haven't already. If you're on iTunes, we deeply appreciate your five-star review. You can say whatever you want about us, questions, comments, snide remarks. But if you can attach to a five-star review, we'd appreciate it because the metrics do matter. Show notes will be available at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com or in my accompanying article at the Havoc Journal or wherever you're listening to this podcast. So be sure to check those out, as well as any alibis. If there's anything I misstated, misspoke, misremembered, something that needed more context, um, in this case, some of the backstory about why I joked with Ben about his cyber certificate uh, from Colorado State University, I'll probably put something down, jot something down there so you guys can get up to speed on that. Um, that's all. That offer is always open for our guests as well, although generally nobody takes me up on that because I'm the only one that tends to brain fart or say something that requires further context in a way that I need to actually write it out and explain it that way. From Ernest Hemingway to Lee Marvin, from Jimi Hendrix to Mel Brooks, there has always been a very special type of American with one foot in both the warrior world and one foot in the artist world. And after 20 years of war, a whole new generation of veterans are infiltrating artistic realms from poetry to theater, from dance to metal, from watercolor painting to stand-up comedy. Savage Wonder is a podcast about warriors and artists. It is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And full disclosure, it's my nonprofit. So if you want to hear me conduct one-on-one long-form interviews with veterans of the military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, or DOD contractors who are also artists, please consider adding the Savage Wonder podcast to your queue. You can also check it out at savagewonder.podbean.com. Again, savagewonder.podbean.com. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Christopher Otero and Ben Varlis. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. I'm going to make a point of saying that we tried to get a female on here to talk about porn as well, and they all turned me down. So they had their shot, but uh, you guys took the plunge, and I appreciate it. I'm sure I'll get beat up over it uh, for sure. <laughs>